Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we're speaking with Kyle Dunn, the CEO of Mailer Capital. I asked Kyle to be on as I've been following his work for a number of years and I've always appreciated the work he does. Mailer Capital focuses on helping fund managers market themselves so they can raise tens of millions or in some cases hundreds of millions in capital for their investment funds. They're focused on a niche that speaks to a highly objective and analytical audience. So I wanted to know what he does to market and help raise capital for these fund managers. I think the advice he shares can be applied to practically any business, from a resource exploration deal to an established firm on a major exchange. To start, Kyle makes a good point that in an industry where outperformance is key, saying you're going to be an outperformer, it really carries no weight in the market or in delivering your message. Performance is assumed, so what is truly distinct about you? Kai goes on to speak about raising capital and marketing a deal. We talk about how you need to deliver your story and even sequence that story so the information you're delivering actually gets absorbed. We also talk about the modern tools that can be used to identify and engage high value investors. I suppose a point I really appreciated is that when you're pursuing capital, you're not trying to prove your legitimacy in day one. You're actually competing for time. Kyle goes on to expand on this point because it's so important for anyone looking to raise capital. You need to build your investment brand and deliver an engaging experience that will build loyalty. This just won't happen with just a pitch deck and a few press releases. So I hope you gain some great insights and enjoy this episode. And as a final note, if you learned something valuable from this, please send Kyle or I an email. It would be great to hear your comments. On the line, I have Kyle Dunn, who is the uh, founder and CEO of Mailer Capital. This is going to be a bit of an interesting interview because you come at raising capital from a different perspective, and I think we're going to have a great conversation. So, Kyle, what do you say I hand it over to you, and you can provide us a bit of a background and an intro to yourself. Excellent. My name is Kyle Dunn. Founded Mailer eight years ago now. I have a partner, JD. We have an office in Vancouver, New York. Mailer, yeah, we're sort of focused on helping alt managers market more effectively and kind of everything that uh, surrounds that and is involved with that. It stems with the belief that you have to have the courage to be different and kind of put technology to work in your efforts to market. Yeah, I, I want to expand on that because I really want to hit a point home. And this is what I really like is it's you help fund managers attract capital, which I think is just, that's what I saw in the work you did. And I was like, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's absolutely what we do. And, and it's sort of focuses on the, the core philosophy that it's best to build positioning around promises you can keep. And 
in this business and what we do, like we haven't run into any asset manager that can guarantee performance. So if you're focused solely on performance and you don't perform, you lose all your integrity if you don't give the money back. And that never happens in this business. So we want to try to find an ability to build brand, to build presence. And how that translates through the marketing processes is massively different in this business versus other businesses. Because everyone is so performance orientated, but we've discovered that you simply have to be good enough. And, and performance is like BMW. Like you assume that their cars are going to run well. In this business, LPs assume that performance is going to be there. If you don't perform, it's you're dead. If you don't perform, sorry, you're dead in the water. So it's something that has to be there. It doesn't have to be kind of the only thing that you do. So we spend so much time focusing on what is truly distinct about a given GP or given asset manager. And that, in essence, is a brand strategy. So we start there and we drive and push into the evolution of language. You can't talk about risk mitigation and operational expertise if you're in the private equity industry and have that be distinctive, impactful. So language has to evolve, but you also have to figure out how you layer your story. And I like to say in this business, if, if people were to kind of build a freeway sign, they'd put a paragraph on it. <laughs> There's just not the time to absorb information like that. And so you have to structure your story and sequence your story. And that bleeds into all the modern tools associated with marketing and effectively reaching people. And all that has to be built on technology as well. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to diving into this. And sorry to interrupt you, but when I see this, the work you're doing there, and as you speak to it with your philosophy or of how you approach it, I think it's so important. And in the nature of this podcast, it's about helping public companies and private companies engage investors. And the same principles that you speak of when you're helping LPs or excuse me, uh, the GPs or the fund managers access capital and engage that capital. This is going to be great, man. So please carry on on this path and let's really get into this. Awesome. Corey, you sort of in preparation for this, you talked about just the sophistication of the community that we're talking to, the LPs, everyone sort of says, well, marketing won't impact these people. They're so objective. However, great marketing is designed for a sophisticated and educated clientele and objective clientele. Like good marketing is not about puffery or unnecessary superlatives. It's about just respecting the intelligence of the audience. Like We don't have to tell these LPs, as I mentioned, that you mitigate risk. Things like that are assumed, so don't waste bandwidth talking about those things and we can't regurgitate things or say things are different when they're not different and we have to understand the competition and even put words in a different order use different words to find power and and then respect people's time and ideally differentiate with design so in our experience if you do those sort of things you just get a much stronger response a much more professional response and that's kind of how we what we try to convince people of so, well, there's no doubt you have. I mean, if you look at almost the, you know, the equivalent of your tombstone list, the number of clients you have on your website and some great names, there's no doubt you have been convincing a lot of funds to invest in you and in helping them build their brand. But what I really thought was interesting and is that you're leading with emotion. And in my opinion, emotion trumps logic. And the fact that that same principle applies to fund managers, a highly, like an uber analytical group of individuals, I thought that was really neat and to see your success from that. 
it's about like focusing on again the sophistication of the LP and kind of the information that they want. And if you do that in a very respectful way, powerful way, you you certainly get way stronger engagement. And it is about engagement. And these GPs talking to the LPs, you're not trying to prove your legitimacy day one. You're competing for time. And as soon as you understand that as a GP trying to communicate to this ultra-sophisticated group of investors, you change what you do and how you think. Like a lot of GPs, they create content and information directed toward the institution as if that institution was a thing. You're not talking to the institution. You're talking to the people within the institution. And those people, like they are making decisions like anyone else. They're worried about getting Johnny to his soccer game after work. So you have to play the game in order to engage that audience. And that's why you have to think about marketing risk and marketing tension in this business. And marketing risk is just doing something different but credible. Tension is just the desire for someone to kind of engage because that's how you get people engaged. That's how you connect with people. And it Mm -hmm. is about people and kind of moving through that. And the traditional diligence process will kind of eventually kick in and eventually engage. But that's why we put a professional surfer in the what was considered the first hedge fund advertisement in the United States. We had Spencer Seabrook, a world record holder in slacklining in in a very successful private equity video that we did. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it's interesting. It's dynamic. It's professional. And people watch it and then they absorb the content of the manager. And then that typically bleeds into uh, a traditional sales process. Emotion trumps logic. (laughs) I know I'm feeding my own words into it, but that's what I get the feeling from what you're saying there. Yeah, absolutely. Like these people are no different than anyone else. No. They they just make decisions on hundreds of millions of dollars a day. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. How can this apply to public companies? I mean, public companies have to market themselves to investors and captivate that capital, be it retail investors all the way up to the institutions who can start to buy into them. And, you know, in asking this, I want to tap into some of your previous professional experience, even before Mailer. So, you know, what advice would you have for these public companies who are looking to differentiate themselves in the market? I think it's marketing 101, right? Like it's understanding why brand is important. It's building audience around that brand. It's delivering what you promise, whether you're a public company, a massive public company, or uh, you're pursuing a private transaction to raise some money for that. It's no different. You have to have integrity. You have to create loyalty. And that's where the big public companies, um, that's why they focus on brands so much is to build that reason why people buy a Ford truck over a GM truck. Even when they know the next GM is kind of better, but they buy Ford because they're Ford people. Like it's looking at that and understanding that and how that applies to the private equity world and the hedge fund world. That, that's all we do. And there's not a whole bunch of people that are taking that philosophy and applying it to this type of industry, or this type of business. Mm-hmm. I think there's way too many people who rely on the black and white as if they're feeding this information to a machine. Yeah, and they assume that people are going to make objective decisions. Like if money just moved to the best investments, 90% of where the money goes every year shouldn't go there. So what's that about? Yeah. No, you know, something that you have, it's actually a, the quote over your bio on your site. You said, most third-party marketers 
aren't marketers. What do you mean by this? And maybe like, and to more to that point, what are some of the cautionary tales you think both your clients, your potential clients, and then in this case, public companies can look out for from that, that quote of yours? Third-party marketers, it's industry speak for placement agents. Like placement agents are, by definition, mercenaries who chase capital. And a lot of the world, the community doesn't know there's this very niche kind of industry out there called the placement industry. But what you tend to, to understand, those people are very relationship oriented. They focus on relationships. They access relationships to get capital to move. However, if you ask these people to step beyond those relationships and move into a true marketing environment where you're, the goal is to talk to people that you don't know, that dynamic is significantly different than what they're used to. Mm-hmm. So third-party marketers are very good salespeople. That doesn't mean that they know very much about marketing. So we kind of differentiate or, or delineate, I should say, between marketing and the actual sales process. In Mailer, like what we do is we work with a select group of those placement specialists and help them sort of start with a stronger marketing process leading into a sales funnel. Can we talk about that? I mean, I think what you mentioned there, it sounds like that placement agent is very similar to an IR professional as well. But when you mention the marketing and the process and moving into a sales funnel and going through that process, what does that look like for you? Or what does that look like when you lead your clients through that? It starts with kind of, okay, how, again, you're not trying to prove your legitimacy day when you're competing for time, right? So you, you need to connect with people and you need to get those people engaged. So the best way to do that is through content positioning, thought leadership. If you're trying to build a relationship with someone or rapport with someone, you, you don't want to sell them something day one. So we really focus on helping people build audience and whether it's your IR specialist or your placement specialist because building audience is the start of how you can build a funnel because the more people are in the top of the funnel the more at the bottom so we figure out what are we going to say to that audience that is impactful and different and that kind of bleeds back into a brand strategy and why you want to to have an anchor point for your messaging so you can be consistent because it takes way more communication into an audience to truly influence that audience than most people think. So we start there, we build that audience, and we kind of build all the tools that are necessary to engage the audience. We're huge fans of video. I like video because it captures the power, conviction, and charisma of human beings, and that's generally what engages an audience. So we can use that video, and we can get those amazingly dynamic people, instead of them having to walk into one room, I can put them being pretty much as good as they can be into a thousand rooms at once. And again, that's the benefit of building audience and that has to bleed into an opportunity funnel. And that's really only possible through lead score. Hmm. And lead score is nothing but building a point value around what someone does online. Marketing in raising capital or most things today is it's kind of progressed beyond a manual process. You can't talk to enough people to achieve the objectives that most want to achieve raising capital. So you have to use tools and technology to nurture an audience and let that audience come to you, let the self-discovery process happen, and then track that. And then the people that are most interested will sort of distill to the surface. And those are the people you call. 
and those being the people who have advanced themselves through digital marketing down the funnel. Yeah, exactly. Like I never wake up like anyone who's sort of looking at, okay, I'm going to call these hundred people. Like in my mind, that whole process has gone away, right? You can never get those hundred people connect with those hundred people at the right time. No one was picking up the phone anymore. Like whether those people are, are interested in what you're doing or whether they're even able to invest, the timing of that is so hard to predict. So if you're out there and you're building audience, and you're communicating to a wide audience, saying interesting and intriguing things, earning the right to communicate. If you're doing it to thousands and thousands of prospective investors, those that are interested will start clicking on stuff. And it's that self-discovery process where by the time you reach out, you can just sort of email them and say, hey, we should have a conversation because they already know you. Mm-hmm. And that's the new cold call. You know what I just find really, really interesting is that in this really tight niche that you work in, and I mean, it's not a massive industry, but for the amount of capital that is managed in it, you're able to create enough of an audience and enough of a following and an engagement online that you can actually use these kind of tactics. And why I find that interesting is because I think a lot of people may look at it and go, well, if I don't have tens of thousands of people coming to my website and seeing the video that I created and seeing this and that and this and that, there's no point in doing any of this lead scoring or creating a funnel or really putting sophistication behind engaging investors. But you seem to be saying the exact opposite. Well- I'm totally saying the exact opposite. Like when you have tens of thousands of people coming to your website, you don't need lead score necessarily. Why? Because if you have that many people moving in your direction, you can convert enough interest through standardized CDAs, call to actions to progress a sales process. In this business, I'm not too concerned what Google Analytics says. Like if I see a whole bunch of IP addresses on a website, that does nothing for me. In this world, you need to know when CalPERS or Ontario teachers or Texas teachers or any of these massive institutions, if one of their people are on your site, you need to know that. And that's why it's even more critical in this world to really leverage technology and do a great job building into the audience so you have a better chance of identifying that situation and watching that situation progress because people tend to like those investors tend to come on to your site when they're interested in what you do and why would they be doing that (laughs) and and talking about you know striking while the iron's hot and and or perhaps striking while the iron's still a little bit cold but giving the opportunity to warm that up over time and track their engagement with you Absolutely. And that's the basis of brand, right? Like you need your reputation, your reputation to precede you. And so if if you've done a great job and you communicated to this audience and you're saying interesting things, you're hitting them through a bunch of different angles, whether maybe you're an event, maybe you're doing a podcast, maybe you're doing a webinar, maybe you're emailing these people. If you do these different things and you, you kind of build this reputation of whatever you're trying to tie your branding to, that's powerful. And then if people bleed through that communication into your digital footprint and see a website that is interesting, dynamic, relevant, well-designed, that starts to influence how they think of you. And, mm-hmm. and so this, this 
older philosophy of whether it's hedge funds or private equity funds, well, we don't need these fancy things because all these people care about is performance. Well, there's tens of thousands of hedge funds and private equity funds. Like the world does not need any more. So what these people have to understand is the amount of choice these investors have is enormous. So you have to impress. And that's what good marketing is. That's what we talk about when we talk about better marketing. If you have a website that looks like it was built in 1997, how are you going to compete against modern, relevant, socially engaged, like team of experts? Mm-hmm. They're going to blow you out of the water. Mm-hmm. We can make a website look sexy. You can do a number of things to bring it into the modern age. But can you talk to us about the tools you use behind the scenes? And for example, a lead scoring system. There's a number of tools I can think of, but what do you use and how does that come together? Yeah, we use just commercial grade software, right? Like we use Zoho and Acton. Acton is the email system. Zoho is the CRM. They're not the best. They're not the worst. Like I gave up years ago worrying about what systems people use, right? The CRM systems are so good now, most of them are great. What you have to understand is, okay, Does my CRM system, is it also an email platform? If it is an email platform, can it build lead score? And some of the best out there are HubSpot, Marketo, Pardot. Those are sort of three of the major ones. There's many more, but you just want to ensure that whatever you're doing, whatever system you're using to email, if someone clicks on an email, you now can track that person to your digital footprint. Mm Mm-hmm. Or fill out a form. And that's one of the more important things with an email system. I want to go further on that. I mean, you can track open rates, you can track clicks, but as well as making sure that it tracks engagement well, on your website. Somebody coming yeah, back like, to your website and cookies and all that. And can you give a little bit more color to that for perhaps a listener who doesn't understand that? Yeah, perfect. Like everyone thinks like open rates and clicks are the analytics you generate. Those are important analytics, but those are like, that's like 2003, 2004 stuff, right? More important is when someone clicks and goes to your website, you can track all of that activity now. So you can see, okay, did they go to your bio? Did they go to your bio twice? Did they go to your investment page? Did they go to your portfolio? Did they go to your investment strategy? You can watch that activity happen. And every time they move through a different place to your site, their point value goes up. So what it does is it automatically elevates someone who has a higher point value versus a lower point value. If they go click on enough things, say their lead score just using an arbitrary number is over 100, you can get an email saying this person is over 100. I do this myself. Every time I send out a communication, I'm sitting in front of my computer engaged in the analytics. And that's an important point to make because a lot of people, they look at analytics two weeks later. It doesn't work that way. Like the most powerful time or the most value you can gain out of analytics is within 30 seconds of someone generating them. Hmm. You act on that. That's it, right? I mean, being able to, and this comes back to sales and marketing of a product. I think there's a stat like something. If somebody submits a request and you phone them in the first five minutes, you've got like a 90% higher probability of closing that sale than if you wait. 100%. And the problem with our industry, everyone's like, well, we can't do that. Look, that looks too salesy. That looks too big brother. 
what people aren't accounting for in the business is that the general populace, the people who are working within these big institutions, they're so used to that. They're booking ski vacations, they're renting cars, they're buying stuff online. It's just what happens now. So it's mm-hmm. no surprise to them when someone sort of says, hey, what's up? Mm-hmm. If you do that well and your lead score is built appropriately, you don't even have to introduce yourself. <laughs> like yeah. a conversation only na- almost naturally happens. At a certain point when someone's clicking on enough stuff, it's like you almost have to say, hey, how are you doing? Yeah, and I think that there's, well, I think it's so often that people put the person they're selling to on a pedestal. And in the world you work in with the fund marketing and the placement agents you work with, I think there's got to be a recognition that the person writing the check into the fund, they have to deploy that capital or they have to find somewhere for that capital to go live for a while. I mean, that's their job. So if they're coming to a website, they're clicking, they're doing things and somebody's worried about being too big brotherish, seeing that happen, you'd actually be helping them out, helping them make that sale or helping them place that capital. Exactly. And this kind of bleeds into, like I talked about before, but probably the most important part of this process is the brand strategy, right? It's like, what is someone going to encounter when they come into your universe? And have you thought that through? And this is why people need to move beyond, I always use it as an example, like risk mitigation, operational expertise, right? Those things are just industry rhetoric. There's no power, there's no meaning. So if you really invest the time as a GP to figure out what your story is and you build that story with emotional, powerful language, that's going to captivate people when they hit your stuff. And that does bleed into the traditional kind of questions that this industry asks regarding performance and diligence and risk process and all those sort of things. But it all starts with, with captivating someone's mind and having them feel, okay, this is different. And that's really accomplished through design and language. So what you're saying to me, I just, I mean, you're preaching to the converted with myself here, but how does this land when you're speaking with the GP for the first time? What do these conversations go like? They go surprisingly well, because by the time they hit us, A, we've kind of been able to monitor their engagement, but by the time they're coming and talking to us, they know the old way is broken. And so that they're looking for a different path forward. And when you start to think about what it means to be a brand, when you start to think about, okay, how do you build true relationships with a prospective target list? That's the fundamental nature of what brand building is, the fundamental nature of of why it's important to build loyalty. Mm. And so a lot of times when they reach us, they're starved for something and someone who has a different idea and how to, to, accomplish their goal or help them and that's when we engage like and we still run into people every day that look at what we do and they just call bs on it it's like all anyone cares about is performance when Mm -hmm. like pretty much every stat out there demonstrate that that's not actually correct yeah well i mean by (laughs) by the performance of in total the mutual fund and the private equity industries all of these industries together the returns at times very rarely beat the market, right? So it isn't performance driven. Exactly. And like, that's why the hedge fund industry has been a tough industry because like you farmer in Nebraska has outperformed some of the top investors in the world. And that's why when you 
talk about a hedge fund, there's a hedge, there's a cost to the hedge. So you can't always kind of be on top of the market. And it's been a bull market for such a long time. Net the last kind of week or two has been Mm -hmm. a pretty volatile place to be. But, and that's where like truly talented investors start to shine is when volatility starts to happen. Right. Right. Okay. So in the marketing that you do, and I mean, it sounds like you're practicing what you preach there. People come and, and you guys put out great content that is all over the places that I hang out online. And I really appreciate and I encourage people to go to Mailer and check out your blog and the work you do there, because I think it paints a great picture of how you can start employing this. But when it comes to honing in on a market segment and a target clientele, what kind of tools do you see that are being used now to capture email addresses, to get people to initially engage? Like is the traditional lead magnet dead? that's at the end of a funnel or it's at the top of a funnel or wherever that is. Yeah. What's it's, new? It's, What's happening? Yeah. Like we work more on the institutional level than the pure retail level. So retail level, like if you're targeting retail connectivity, you're playing the game with all the traditional digital marketing, advertising, all those sort of things in our world, the people who are in our world and institutional investors, family offices, all those sort of things are so well documented. You don't need to, go and try to find the emails. You just buy databases and the databases are so well manicured Mm. that it's never about, okay, who are we going to target? It's about how the heck are we going to get through to those people? And that's the much harder challenge because everyone like me, we know who these people are, but they don't want to talk to the hundreds and hundreds of people that are trying to connect with them every day. Yeah, they've got to have just a boatload of people banging down their door every day. 100%, 100%. So now how do you get through that door? Right now, it's about being really smart. And so the first thing that you have to do is you have to say powerful things and you have to say big things. And you have to figure out what those things are. And we help people do that. And that starts with subject lines. And it's earning the right to communicate to these people, obviously getting opt-in, all those sort of things. But you have to do that consistently. And people in this business don't really appreciate the consistency required to build awareness and build brand. You've got to keep communicating, keep communicating, keep communicating. Like we've sent emails to someone like 60, 70 emails to someone. We ask them how many emails we sent. They're like four or five. Hmm. Well, no, I've been emailing you every month for five years. Right. (laughs) So like, it's about that consistency, but it's about building the audience. So the kind of leaking into interest is big enough to have an impact. You also can't say the same things. You can't do the same things. Like you truly have to have a value proposition. And this again relates to, okay, how are you telling your story? Like not many people talk to as many managers as we talk to. I walk into these rooms with private equity funds, hedge funds, and I say, why should an investor invest with you? Go. What happens? The person starts talking. They start stumbling over it. And 10 minutes later, they're still talking. You lost me like eight minutes ago. So again, now it's all about the sequencing of your stories. When you walk into a room with an LP or whether it's a, it could be a retail person, it doesn't matter. If you walk into a room with someone and someone's there to invest in your product, you need to be able to say, you want to invest in this for this reason, this reason, and this reason. If those three reasons could be two, could be four, if those reasons aren't of interest to you, we're both wasting our time. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. We're not the right person for you. We're not the right investment for you. If you do that well, what you're going to find is you can structure those things where 90% of the people who are standing across the room, you go, yeah, I'm interested. I really like where you're going with this. And you actually mentioned something, sequencing stories. And what I took from that is perhaps having your opening story, but then also having other stories to help further the conversation along. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, like and story may be the wrong word. It's more your unique selling proposition or your right. value proposition, however you want to say. Like you have to be able to say why someone should care about you very quickly. It's like the freeway sign, right? You need to create a freeway sign that gets someone off the freeway so they're willing to pay attention to you. And so when you're in a room, like these managers have probably met with hundreds of people. So you need to quickly establish rapport. You need to quickly ensure that they are qualified and interested in what you're doing. So when it comes to that story development, and I'll use the word story, but you know, to finding and delivering the narrative around communicating the value proposition, what's the process you go through with your clients to do that? And how do you get them to buy in and embrace it? Yeah, it's a brilliant question. Um, The first place we typically start is what we call logic check, where we go and talk to a lot of existing or past investors and stakeholders of whatever kind of firm we're working with. Because when you talk to those people, if you do that in an anonymous way and you tell people that no one will ever know who said what, you learn a lot. And what's fascinating is we do this all the time. We go talk to these investors and we come back with a presentation of what was said. And you sit in these rooms with these managers and you say, this is what your current investors are saying about you. Hmm. And it is just an amazing process to watch the shock a lot of times where it's like, wow, we didn't think that we were perceived in that way. What are some of the, the revelations that you've seen in doing that? The biggest ones are like the fact that it, what they're doing doesn't feel differentiated. And that happens and comes across like all the time. It's not a differentiated offering. The performance isn't the underlying reason why we're going to invest, right? We would redeem the second that we needed the cash. Like things like that are interesting to this community because it surprises them. Mm-hmm. They think there's greater loyalty. They think there's greater differentiation. Well, there's no differentiation in saying you mitigate risk because everyone does that. It's like BMW saying our cars run well. That's the start of the post, but to, to finish the question, we, yeah, we then do. go into rooms and after we present that, we then kind of begin to break down what the story is. So we want to understand, okay, what are all the attributes that are interesting, intriguing, different about this situation? And we put all those down. And then we look to prioritize those. And this is cool too, because when you prioritize those, what you'll notice it's there's three or four there that every asset manager can say. So you need to sort of say, okay, yeah, we understand that these are important, but everyone says this stuff or does these things. So let's push those aside. What's left? And if you go through that, then you begin to really find what's unique about a shop. So we isolate those things. Most importantly, though, at that point, we build consensus with the team. And there's nothing more powerful than consensus because you need everyone out there saying the same thing because you need that consistency to eventually break through the market. And so we figure, okay, these are the things we get buying from everyone. And then we go away and we try to create powerful language around those attributes that hasn't been used to the point where it means nothing. Mm -hmm. 
like being, I'm sorry, I can't speak more to the funding industry or the fund industry, but in the public markets, you always hear we're strategically positioned and it's like, oh, you are too? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's no difference. There's all that white noise and in industry that exists. And you know, when you encounter something powerful, when it doesn't feel like it's rhetoric, when there's tension, when you hear something or feel something or see something where it's like, whoa. And the art is to create that whoa, but in a way that doesn't offend, in a mm-hmm. way that's professional. And doesn't sound fabricated or exactly leans exactly. on authentic. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever um, put time into and thought about things like, I think there's a book called Words That Work and looking at how language in the pitch and in the development of a story is really powerful. Like you've mentioned using powerful language, but have you used any resources, any good books to help frame that up? Oh, I've read so many books, like titles aren't jumping into my brain right now, but it, it's a little different with what we do is because it's so niche and there's so much rhetoric. It's really hard to move away from words like alpha, mm. bespoke <laughs> and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. So like conviction and portfolio. So like we have to, we sometimes have to use the words the industry uses because there's no other word. <laughs> right. But the hard part that we have is, okay, how do you make a long, short fund sound different when it's technically doing the same thing that a thousand other long, short funds are doing? And now it comes back to the human beings involved. Why are these people different? Mm-hmm. And again, this is where you need to really kind of go through a process to really figure out what that stuff is and then find language that truly describes that in a creative, interesting way that's credible for the industry and the audience. And the biggest thing is you have to have courage. You have to be prepared to take marketing risk. And marketing risk is no different than investment risk. Everyone we talk to wants outsized performance in their marketing efforts. They want to raise a lot of money quickly. Well, I ask them, if you're investing, can you get 20% without taking risk? They're like, no, you need to take risk. Well, marketing, if you want outsized returns, you need to take risk too. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> what What is marketing risk? Like marketing risk is just let's do something different where we don't technically know what the outcome will be because that's the only way we're going to break the process, break the mold. If we do the same stuff you did last year and the year before and the year before and the year before, the result's probably going to be the same. Yeah, what's possibly going to change? Exactly. And marketing risk is it's whether it's different language, whether it's different tools, whether it's different design, I like my glass cube kind of analogy where you could say you have, you know, a hundred people who you think are close to you and you want to engage them. You could imagine a glass cube that's the size of a, just a big ice cube um, with your logo sketched in it. And you, this arrives on someone's desk with an, and a nice letter saying, we're going to send you an email tomorrow. So that person like, what? this is a bit strange. And, but it's all done in very professional letterhead, very professional delivery, professional package, it looks sharp. And so you, the email arrives tomorrow and you said, we sent you the glass cube. We'd love it if you'd take 10 minutes to watch this video or two minutes to watch this video because we think it'll interest you. Hmm. So what you're doing is that's marketing risk, right? You're changing how people typically are approached and the end result can be better or worse. And there's, you asked about it at one point, in a previous conversation, Corey, you asked about ROI, right? 
true ROI and getting more from your marketing efforts can only happen, A, if you start recording what's working and what's not, but trying things. Because you figure out this worked, that didn't work. And so over time, you can better kind of, I don't know, shape your efforts for the greatest result. Mm-hmm. Yeah, marketing risk is an interesting one. And I think perhaps the only way to truly start to measure that is through well, taking those risks and taking a number of them where you can start to calculate one against the other. But I think that there's, I mean, how many times have you taken a marketing risk in helping your clients raise capital or position themselves to raise capital and, and it fell flat or it fell short? I don't know if they ever fall short. It's just they get the normal response, right? Because mm. we try to do very professional things that are different, right? So most things that happen in the business that we're in don't blow the doors off the marketing records that exist out there. So, but certain things we do have done very well. Like the video I referenced with the, the professional surfer, we had thousands and thousands and thousands of people watch that video. It was aligned with a really great PR strategy. It had this huge amount of interest. These people were in all the big news cycles. It worked brilliantly well. Hmm. On a smaller scale, it's we are often create really unique language where people encounter it. They're truly captivated by the story. Hmm. The, the real win when we do great work is when you see the enthusiasm of the general partner or the client change. When you see that there's a spark to how they want to tell their story or they're excited to send their deck, they're excited to show people your website. Mm-hmm. It's that enthusiasm. is It's undervalued in the marketing process because it's that passion that connects human to human. You know, Kyle, I've seen that actually with some of the clients I've worked with when you help reframe how they're delivering the message of their business to the market. And all of a sudden this enthusiasm comes back of, wow, like my business is exciting again. And that just becomes almost contagious or, uh, you know, infectious in the sense that everyone around them starts to, to pick up on this new narrative that is embraced. And yeah, that is a cool feeling. So that's really interesting to hear, hear you say. Well, think about all the big brands that you gravitate towards. Like you do that because you're enthused by what they're saying. You feel aligned, you feel connected. You feel like they think like you and are like value the same things that you value. That's all that great marketing really is. It's how do you do that? And in our business, one of the most important things to consider is that you can't be everything to everyone. And I think that's what LPs or GPs struggle with 100% is they are so worried about alienating a given investor group that they dilute their language to the point where they're not attractive to anyone and they're not Mm -hmm. saying anything. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a huge pitfall that I think a lot of people run into when they're trying to raise money is they're trying to capture everyone. Well, you're much better off going, okay, it is this specific audience we're chasing and create messaging and tools and positioning for that audience. And you'll probably raise way more capital because you're not, you're actually end up saying something. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I see where you're going then. I, I could even imagine, and I'm maybe I'm just thinking, you know, way too off here, but for those who embrace really a, a powerful narrative, embrace language that is authentic to themselves and decide to differentiate and not use the same old words everybody else is, 
they'll start to build a brand presence with their investors. And those investors, ideally, you'd think and would hope that in tough times, they're not the first ones getting a call for redemptions. A hundred percent. Like what's the true test of brand? Loyalty. There you go. Right? So why are people buying the Ford trucks when the GM or the Dodge is better that year? Right? It's because they're loyal to Ford. Why are they loyal to Ford when there's a superior product across the street? Yeah. Because like that's how these managers, these people have to feel. It's not about the 13%, right? Yeah, like because the other guy is going to be 15% one year. So if you focus on performance and live by the sword, you die by the sword. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're the first to go. Something else that I think plays a big role or is playing a bigger and bigger role is the use of social media in all of the branding, the brand development, the messaging. What's your take on social? Because if I had my way with it, I would say I'll never use it again. But I'm obviously missing something for some industries and some spaces. But how about you and the business you're in? Yeah, like we we are connected to a very kind of institutional community. Like we're not a real retail shop, right? So Mm -hmm. we're not in the Facebook realm or the Instagram realm or the 40 other things that are probably cooler than those things now. Like we live and breathe on LinkedIn and Twitter. And those are fabulous platforms for kind of our universe, more LinkedIn than Twitter. Like Twitter is more, it's more impactful for just trading and, and like sort of stock picking and, and I guess commentary as well. But LinkedIn is where we see a ton of value for our world. Like you can connect with people and like it's it's social marketing is now just marketing, right? It's just like breathing. You just do it. And the thing that you have to kind of be aware when you're in the social world is it's no different than walking into a cocktail party. Right. If you walk in a cocktail party and you ask, hey, will you invest with me? Will you invest with me? Will you invest with me? You just look like an idiot. Mm-hmm. It's no different on whatever social platform that you're on. Like, Meet these people. Build a relationship. Everyone that you have ever talked to who raises money says it's a relationship-based business. Well, hell, you can't just email someone a deck and say, are you interested? Do you want to invest? Because they have no relationship with you. That's massively important when these people are going to invest 50 million bucks. Mm-hmm. Spend the time. Like you'll actually shorten the sales cycle if you spend the time to prove to these people that you're interested in building an authentic relationship. And you can only do that if you don't keep asking for something every time you talk to them. Hmm. And, you know, I'm just thinking of this. I interviewed a gentleman named Richard Wilson who founded something called the Family Office Club and uh, I think Centi Millionaire club where he helps family offices market themselves and or like family office managers market themselves and the one thing he i just thought that was so shocking was he said in his interview that a number of years ago he saw somebody like gary v talk about social media and using video and he said you know what i'm going to be the son of a bitch to do that and sure enough he went out there and started creating videos and using social media to focus in on another really tiny world of family office money. And he gets calls from billionaire families saying, I saw you on YouTube. I mean, I was shocked by that. 
So it goes to show. It's not shocking. It happens all the time. We've created a ton of content over the years and it creates a ton of value. However, what people have to understand is it doesn't work if you create one video and put a video on YouTube, right? This comes back to the consistency of building awareness. Like what Richard, CL Rich's stuff as well, what he's done incredibly well is the consistency of his approach. Like he has done it over and over and over again. I can assure mm-hmm. you the first two or three years, he probably was getting a whole hell of a bunch out of that effort, right? Great marketing. It's never a magic button. You never create a situation where it's like you're rolling in clients and it's the best thing that's ever happened to you. Like marketing is the, it's the same as a casino business. It's about taking the odds of closing someone from 48% to 52%. Mm. It's, Still requires a ton of effort. It still requires a ton of work. But as long as you're winning more than you're losing, your marketing, it's valuable. Now, with that, I mean, with consistent content development, I think this is probably the bane of so many both marketers and just executives' existence of how to consistently create compelling content that's just not something regurgitated. What process do you guys take and how do you continue to create great content? A, have an opinion. It starts with an opinion. And then you have to have the courage to actually say how you feel, understanding that you're going to offend people. And you want to be respectful and professional of those things. But as soon as you kind of make that leap, it becomes a lot easier. You're less afraid, I guess, is a better way to put it. And then behind that, it's just hard work. I've written hundreds and hundreds of blogs over the last, like, eight years. Like, do I wake up some days and go, I don't want to do this? Of course, right? But it's the commitment to the process. It's commitment to marketing. Marketing has to become part of your organization. It can't be something that you do that you don't want to do. It's as important as every other component of your business. It it just has to sort of become your DNA. Hmm. And then it becomes easier. I think what I'm hearing is it just comes down to street discipline. Oh, beautiful word. I love that word. It is discipline. And so you look at these people and say, I'll never do that. And then I look back at them and say, well, then don't bitch at me if you can't raise the money. (laughs) Right? Because if you're not willing to change your behavior and what you're doing is not working, how the hell are we going to accomplish anything? Understanding the difference between building a brand and randomly communicating is important. I think understanding the importance of evolution of language when you're selling investment product, use words that are powerful, layering your story is critical, pushing their video. expand on that? Layering your story? It's just the whole sequence. It's the freeway sign thing, right? People have these 30-page marketing decks in our world and, and they're the holy grail of everything. But like, if you use the technology, you send these things to people and you can see that no one's really reading them. Right. So that's why video is if you're trying to break through into a new audience, most people absorb new content when they're in a position where they can't do anything productive. Right. They're in a cab. They're standing in line in Starbucks. Like if you get one of these investors, they're sitting at their computer. I can assure you they're trying to survive hundreds of emails. But when they're kind of in between things and they don't want to have to type and they just send in getting coffee they they're not allowed to be on their computer because they're on an airplane so they hit their phone like 
those are the moments where you start to capture new people, new interest. And so you need to build tools that allow for that. And video is fantastic for that. Hmm. So back to sequencing, you can start with kind of a video and then, okay, how does that bleed into kind of how you tell the rest of the story? When do you send your marketing deck? Like if someone asks you a marketing deck, that doesn't mean you have to send your marketing deck. You can say, why don't you watch a video first? Because if our video doesn't intrigue you, our marketing deck certainly not going to. Hmm. And now what you're doing is you're controlling the sales process. And the trick to selling anything and, and even raising capital is you never give control back to the LP or the investor. That's if you create a client journey and you can structure, okay, how is someone going to move from not knowing us through our data room, through our like subscription agreements, like, Think that through, run that through, test that, challenge that. Mm -hmm. Not a whole bunch of people in our world do that. Well, it's no wonder with their sales process, like kind of falls off a cliff in the middle because they haven't thought about how are they going to move someone through it. Really mapping that out and being strategic and looking at your points of communication along the way. Boom, right? And that sequencing, that glaring. But in order for all that to be effective, you have to have the technology underneath the process. If you're not building lead score, you're like, it is, in my opinion, it's one of the single most important things in a modern marketing process. Now, I just, I want to, to drive in one more question on that. Perhaps it's where's the best place or where would you suggest somebody go to really wrap their head around lead scoring and the process there? Do you have any resources or is it, you know, just a good YouTube search to start Wrap uh, just, yeah, a good YouTube search to start. But like, there's so much quality content on the websites of the big kind of tools. Like, go to HubSpot, go to Marketo, go to Parda. Like, just start. Go to Acton. Just start absorbing content. Like other really amazing tools. Dachshund is one of the most amazing tools out there. Like, it and it allows you to kind of record how people kind of view a PDF document. Wistia is, is what we use to track video views. Like if I send you a video, like I'm watching you watch that video in real time. Mm. And, and there's the nothing. It's Wistia. Oh, Wistia. W-I-S-T-I-A.com. Yeah. Yeah, I love that tool. Um, we use it all the time. So, And video views are, are powerful because no one really accidentally watches two minutes of a video. So I'll take a video view over 20 clicks all day long. Hmm. Interesting how you place the value there of on a video over, uh, you know, a number of clicks. Yeah. Hmm. Well, it's a, a really interesting conversation, especially for a world when it comes to raising big capital from very logical people. You know, that was the, the main motivation I had in reaching out aside from just following your work for so many years and the insights you've shared. I hope they change a lot of listeners views on what it takes to raise capital. Do you have any final, yeah, just any final pieces of advice you can yeah. share with the audience? I think the biggest thing is there has to be passion. There has to be enthusiasm. There has to be excitement behind even the most sophisticated investment product, right? Like you're typically dealing with people and those people want to be enthused. They want to feel engaged. They want to feel belonging all those sort of things. And that's what building brand is about. If you do that and you do it well, 
you'll find that your performance becomes less of the focal point, which for anyone who invests anything is the best possible thing that could happen. Yeah, I appreciate that. Just to wrap up, where can the listeners follow your work and start to see more about uh, Mailer Capital and what you do? Just go to mailercapital.com. We have a sign up for our newsletter, which we communicate with religiously. And LinkedIn is a wonderful place as well. We post everything through LinkedIn. So just find my profile or Mailer Capital's profile and stuff will eventually enter your brain. (laughs) That's right. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for making the time. Yeah, it was fabulous. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.